Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. My name is Livia Ribeiro, and I'm originally from Brazil, where I was born, raised, and I got married to Rodrigo. I am from a Christian family, Baptist, and made the decision to follow Jesus very early in my life. In 2014 and 15, I was assigned to working projects in the U.S. by the company that I work for as a Brazilian employee, and in October 2015, I was permanently transferred with my husband to New York with the support of the company. It was very exciting and scary at the same time, and God has showed us his mercy and grace as he has provided all we need, even the small details. A friend of mine introduced us to this church, which I have loved and felt home since the first step that I took through these doors. As an immigrant recently arrived to a new country, many challenges and uncertainties about the future made me feel a strong fear. Challenges like the language, culture, being far from the family, and the political and regulatory scenarios made me feel very afraid. During many days, the fear and anxiety start to control my action and making me feel frozen and stuck. And through this church, friends, and through reading the Bible, God showed me that he will always continue to take care of me independently of where I am and independently of how challenged the world seems to be. God made me experience the peace when I decided to rest and depend on him, knowing that he is in control. As I have the opportunity to talk to all of you, I'd like to encourage this church to continue to love and embrace people that enter through these doors, independently from their origin. Uh, I also want to ask you to pray for Brazil, which is paying for political and economic crisis. Pray that God may use his church in Brazil to make the difference and help the country to overcome the corruption. We are all one church, one body, called as followers of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4, 14, 16. Portanto, visto que temos um sumo sacerdote que adentrou os céus, Jesus, o Filho de Deus, apeguemo-nos com toda a firmeza à fé que professamos. Pois não temos um sumo sacerdote que não possa compadecer-se das nossas fraquezas, mas sim alguém que, como nós, passou por todo tipo de tentação, porém sem pecado. Assim sendo, aproximemo-nos do trono da graça com toda confiança, a fim de recebermos misericórdia e encontrarmos graça que nos ajude no momento da necessidade. The word of the Lord. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um... So for the last week or so, I've had this sore throat, and uh, so my voice is a little deeper than it has been, and uh, a lot more like Barry White, or, or perhaps James Earl Jones, and that's just one of the few benefits that you get with uh, having a sore throat, and so I don't know if you want to hear this or not, but this morning I couldn't sleep, you know, my throat was hurting, I got up, I went into the bathroom, and I'm standing at the sink. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and I'm saying, James, you do not look very good today. And, then I, I, and I was actually speaking out loud to myself, and I could hear how deep my voice was. And then I said, 
Luke, I am your father. So now you know what your pastor does at five in the morning when he has a sore throat. So bear with me. Uh, We're going to get through this. Uh, For the past six weeks, if you've been with us, uh, we have been walking our way through the book of Hebrews. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed about the book of Hebrews that I think is really interesting is it's very much like a counselor who is reaching out to his client. And he's trying to offer words of encouragement, words of advice, some direction, uh, some prodding at times. And what you see in the first three chapters of Hebrews is the, the counselor, the author, is, is holding up the supremacy of Jesus. He's trying to help them to recognize how great Jesus is. And then in chapter 4, he starts to focus on the importance of them keeping their faith. And, and so he, he's challenging them to keep the faith because he knows that if they don't keep their faith, they're going to miss out on the blessings of God. And he reminds them of uh, the, the Israelites as they were traveling through the desert during the time of the Exodus. And you might remember that they were not allowed to enter the promised land because although God had made himself available to them and provided everything for them, they could not put their trust in God and instead relied on their own wisdom, their own knowledge. And because of that, it cost them the blessing of entering the promised land and receiving the kind of rest that they were looking for. And so the counselor is using that as an example and saying, please don't fall into the same pattern. Keep the faith. But a good counselor also knows that when somebody is down or discouraged or feeling um, at their wit's end, you can't just prod them. You can't just tell somebody, hey, you know what you need to do is keep the faith. Have you ever been in a situation where you were feeling really discouraged about something? I mean, to the extent that you thought, you know, maybe I'm on the verge of giving up. And you go to someone that you trust, that you know is going to speak words of truth and love and wisdom into your life. And what they do is they listen to you and they say, you know what you need to do? You need to put your faith in Jesus. And, you know, you listen to them and you, you agree with them. Because you know what they're saying is true, but there's a part of you that says, I'd really like to send you to Jesus right now. (laughs) Right? Right? Because they're not meeting you at the point that you're at. What you need in that moment is empathy and encouragement and a reassurance that not only keeping the faith is important, but that God has you in his hand, that he will remain faithful to you, that he has remained faithful to you. And that's exactly what the counselor is doing when we get to the end of chapter 4. We need to know how trusting in God will help us in our time of need, don't we? We need to be reminded 
of how faithful God has been to us and what that looks like in tangible ways. You see, keeping the faith, if you think about it, is not so much a call to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and to press in and to do great works for the kingdom and to keep our faith strong as much as it is an opportunity to take our heavy burdens and lay them in the hands of a God who can carry them for us because he knows that we're not capable of carrying them ourselves. That's really the heart of Christianity. And so if we look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, this is the passage that was read today, but for the two or three of you that don't know Portuguese, I will read it for you. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we were, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you, do you sense the compassion in this passage? What the, what the counselor is saying here is that Jesus is a high priest like no other. Like no other. He's able to empathize with our weaknesses. He, he gets it. He's been there. He's experienced it. He understands all of our temptations, and he too was tempted. But what's different from him about the other high priests is that he was able to overcome them all. He never fell into sin. And so now Jesus is offering to serve as our high priest in our time of need. Now the Hebrew readers would have understood the significance of having a high priest because in their culture, if you wanted to draw close to God, the only way you could do that is through going to see a high priest. Because everyone knew that because of sin, there was a separation from God. And to deal with that sin, you would go to a high priest and the high priest would offer a sacrifice on your behalf. And then you would be cleansed. You would be right with God up to that point. Now, in Hebrews 5, 1 through 6, the author says... Every high priest is selected from among the people and appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son today, and I have become your father. And he says it in another place. You are a priest forever in the order 
of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? We're going to come back to that. But let's look at first what this passage is reminding us of. It's reminding us of the function of the high priest. Notice that in verse 3 that the author points out that the high priest must also make sacrifices for himself when he's making sacrifices for those who have sinned. That's because the high priest is also fallible, just like you and me. They also fall into sin. So before they sacrifice for the, or on behalf of other people, they have to deal with their own brokenness. Now, while drawing a parallel to the Levitical high priest and Jesus, the great high priest, not everything in the comparison is equal because Jesus did not have to make sacrifices for himself because he made one sacrifice, his own life, and that became the sacrifice of sacrifices, sacrifice for all time, once and for all, his sacrifice covered the sins of past, present, and future. Now, in verse 4, we see that this was part of God's plan all along. In verse 6, the counselor cites Psalm 110, verses 4, to describe the unique function and purpose of Christ's priesthood and how it's separate from this other priestly office. Specifically, that Jesus is priest forever. Forever. In the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's look at Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a priest and king, actually the king of Salem, which was later named Jerusalem. The city was later named Jerusalem. And he reigned during the days of Abraham. Now, the book of Genesis tells us that Abraham returned from an important battle and that when he returned from that battle, he gave a tenth of all of the plunder to Melchizedek, the high priest, as a tithe. Now, Melchizedek was intended to be a type of Christ or an example of who Christ was to be. A snapshot, if you will, of Jesus, of what Jesus would look like. And it was deliberate, a deliberate comparison upon God's part. He's giving us a foreshadow of what Christ is going to do on our behalf. And in Hebrews 7, too, if we skip ahead to Hebrews 7, it says, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So get these names. He's king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. So Melchizedek's name means that he is the king of righteousness and peace. Does that sound familiar? The king of righteousness and peace. Who is the king of righteousness and peace? Jesus. Through Melchizedek, God was declaring that the coming Messiah would be a king bringing righteousness and peace to the world. But even more than that, through this great Old Testament priest, God declared something very special about Jesus. In Hebrews 7.3, it tells us that Melchizedek was without a father 
or a mother without a genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling that of the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Now, in order to be a high priest, genealogy was very, very important. There's no way that you could ever become a high priest if you didn't have an accurate record of your genealogy because the Levitical line was the only line that allowed priests to come out of. Melchizedek somehow breaks the mold. He doesn't have a father or a mother. He doesn't have any record of birth or death. And it's designed that way because he's supposed to be a foreshadow of the great high priest who would come, who is Jesus. He's an eternal priest. Now, Jesus is of an eternal priesthood. He has offered one eternal sacrifice, which is now the only sacrifice that God recognizes. So we don't have to go to a high priest any longer and offer sacrifices for our sins because we have Jesus who has offered the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that God will accept. Now, why is this important? Well, we know that God's people were unable to live up to the standards of the law. And so, and so were the high priests. They were, they were struggling to do so as well. So they were continually offering sacrifices for the people and for themselves. Basically, under the Mosaic law, if you sinned, you would automatically be separated from God. You had no contact with God at that point. And the only way to deal with that sin would be to take an animal to the high priest, have him sacrifice that animal for you. And then, once that animal was dead, God would look at the death of that animal as an atonement for your sin, and you would once again be right with God. Up to that point. Now, the problem is that as you were leaving the temple, there's really a good chance that you're going to fall into sin again. What if you have a malicious thought or you see something on your way out of the temple that you really like and you realize you're coveting that thing? Or you have a lustful thought? Well, even before leaving the temple, you're once again separated from God. So you have to get another animal, take it back to the high priest again. It's, a, it's an impossible situation that people were in. Jesus, however, is different in that he has gone through the heavens. He has entered into the very presence of God. Remember, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. That was symbolic of entering the presence of God. Jesus has entered the presence of God. In his glorified human nature, Jesus had entered the presence of God fully acquainted with human weakness and temptations, he intercedes on our behalf when we approach the throne of grace in prayer. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. 
And remember, Jesus fulfilled all of the requirements of the law, the sacrificial system, when he offered himself up as a sacrifice for sin. Now, in Hebrews 7, 24 and 25, it says that Jesus lives forever, so he has a permanent priesthood, so he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus always lives to intercede for them. Now, the word intercede, this is very interesting. The word intercede doesn't just mean something that priests do. Of course, they would intercede to God for the worshipers, but the word intercede also means to appear as a representative, as, as, a, as if you were an attorney representing someone in a court of law. Okay, so you're representing someone. Now, most of us assume that there will come a day where we will have to give an account for everything that we have said or done. It will be the court of all courts. And God will be presiding. And we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we want to go into that court alone? Or do we want to have someone standing on our behalf as an intercessor, as an advocate? Because that's what Jesus is saying that he will do for us. Now, if you're like me, every now and then when you get home late at night, you sit down on the couch and you turn on the TV and you start flipping through the channel looking for anything to watch. And then you, as you're flipping through, oh, law and order. Law and order. Okay. We'll watch law and order for an hour. So you start watching law and order. Now, one of the things that I've noticed about law and order is every once in a while, there will be a court case where someone decides that they want to represent themselves. Have you ever seen one of those episodes? And it's usually somebody that's brilliant, somebody that's incredibly witty, someone that knows the law very well, and they go into the courtroom and they woo the jury, they woo the judge, and they get off for whatever it was that they had done. Okay? Well, I talked with some attorney friends of mine about that this past week, and they said, that would never happen. That would never happen. No one in their right mind would go into a court and represent themselves, especially if the possibility of a life sentence was hanging over them. Now, one of the most captivating court cases of my lifetime, and maybe yours, certainly of the last century, was the O.J. Simpson trial. You remember it? Now, you may remember where you were the day the verdict was announced. I remember where I was. I was at university, and I was in this common room, and I was sitting there in front of a big screen TV with about 200 other people. 
And I, the thing that I still distinctly remember was when the verdict was announced, about half of the people in the room were absolutely elated, jumping up and down, screaming. And the other half of the room sat there in stunned silence, in complete disbelief. It was a very polarizing case. Now, O.J. was on trial for two counts of murder for the death of his wife, his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman. Simpson was represented by a very high-profile defense team, often referred to as the Dream Team, which was led by Robert Shapiro, and Johnny Cochran. The team also included Robert Kardashian. You might recognize that name for other reasons today. But the original fame of the Kardashian family really came when this case was won. Deputy District Attorney Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden believed that they had a very, very strong case against Simpson. They had DNA evidence. They had the car chase on video. Remember the car chase? The white Bronco. OJ driving down the freeway in California. All these police cars trying to get him to pull over. They had a lot of circumstantial evidence. They knew that his ex-wife and, and, and OJ had a very turbulent relationship where the police had to be called in on multiple occasions. But Cochran was able to convince the jurors that there was reasonable doubt about the DNA evidence, that it, would, that it may have been mishandled or tampered with. Because remember, this was around the time where there were race riots in California, so there was a lot of tension in, in that season. And people were very wary of that. And you also might remember that investigators had found some gloves at the scene of the crime. And when they put those gloves on OJ in the courtroom, what did they find? They were, they were too tight. They were tight on OJ. And that was the biggest break that Johnny Cochran was looking for. Remember the... The mantra that he started using, if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit, right? And he kept saying that over and over again to the jury. And in spite of all of this evidence, the jury came back with a not guilty verdict on both accounts. And regardless of where you stood, whether you were rooting for O.J. or you were convinced that he was guilty, everyone agreed that O.J. won that case because of his attorneys, because of the brilliance of his advocates. The only people who go into court without an advocate are people who are really prideful, that is, people who think that they're smart enough to present themselves in such a way that they can win somebody over on their own merit. Or people who are really religious, 
And that might surprise you. But if a person is really religious, they're going to assume that they really don't even need an advocate because of their good works. These are the people that say, hey, you know, I'm a pretty good person. You know, if you compare me to so-and-so, you know, I think I'm pretty good. But you know what? Christianity isn't about good works. It never was. So the writer is reminding us that while we are no longer under the law, that is, we do not need to make sacrifices every time we sin, we now have an advocate that is available to us who will stand for us within our battles if we will allow him to. You see, an advocate never forces himself on his client. The client has to choose to accept the advocate. He will be our advocate when we stand before God in the only court that really matters. And if that happens, we will have an advocate like no other. Think about what it means for us If we were accused of a crime and called into a court, when that day comes, we will look like our advocate. You see, it's our advocate's performance, not ours, that will make or break us. If our advocate is eloquent and brilliant, we will come across as being eloquent and brilliant. Because everything that our advocate is is imputed to us. That's what Christ does for us. If our advocate wins, we win. If our advocate loses, we lose. Because our advocate is our substitute. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not simply having Jesus as an example that we're supposed to live up to, although we try. But if trying to live up to the example of Jesus is what Christianity is about, going to church, reading our Bible every day, having quiet times, serving, being part of the Welcome and Connect ministry, sponsoring children in Africa, those are all good things. But apart from Christ... Apart from an advocate, all those things are is just opportunities to try and represent ourselves. And they're never going to be enough in and of themselves. Now, the best part of having Jesus as your advocate, and I love this part. I love this part. Jesus does not need to ask the judge for mercy. Jesus is asking the judge for justice. And there's a huge difference between the two. If an advocate or an attorney asks for mercy, they know that their client has already lost the case. And what they're looking for at that point is leniency. But in Hebrews 7, 28, or 7, 27 and 28, it says that unlike the other high priests... 
He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the others. Rather, he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. What is that saying to us? Jesus, in that court of law, can demand justice because he has already paid the price for our sins, past, present, and future. And he knows that it would be unjust for the judge to ask for a second payment that has already been paid. So what Jesus is asking the judge for is justice and not mercy. That means with Jesus as our advocate, we cannot lose that case. In John 1, 8 and 9, it says... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Did you notice that it didn't say faithful and merciful? It doesn't say merciful because Jesus is our advocate. And he doesn't need to ask for mercy. He only needs to ask for justice. When Jesus is our advocate, the very righteousness... And justice of God demands our acceptance. In Christ, we are whole again. We can live a beautiful life that represents the beauty of Jesus. And I say that because having Christ as our advocate forever means that it doesn't begin when we die and we go to that courtroom where we have to give an account. It begins now. See, because what Christ has done in your life, freeing you from the chains of sin and death, you can live a victorious life in the present like you never could before. You can live the abundant life now because Christ has made that possible for you. So the essence of the Christian life is to say that he is good enough and that we are in him. When Christ is truly our advocate, our identity is rooted in him alone. And we stand with confidence in the only court that really matters. You know, sometimes I have the opportunity to lead people to faith in Christ. And, and as I'm sharing with them and talking with them about their life, and then they're praying the prayer, um, sometimes after the fact I'll say, would you be willing to share your testimony in front of our whole congregation. And a lot of times they'll say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I can do that because I really don't feel like I'm a very good Christian. You know, I still feel like there's a lot of things that I need to get right. I mean, I, I know I'm saved, but I, you know what they're actually saying in that moment? They may not realize it. They may just be trying to be humble or show humility But what it actually shows is a denial of the faith. What it shows is they didn't fully comprehend that it's Christ alone. And what they're trying to do is have Christ to get things started, and then they're going to take it from there. And they're never going to make it. And so we have to go back to square one and work through that that whole process again. When Christ is our advocate through faith, 
we are so incredibly blessed. We receive so many blessings. Uh, just to name a few. We're given a new identity. Our debt is paid. We're justified. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. We're given power to overcome the enemy. We've been moved from the enemy's kingdom to the kingdom of God. We've been given an unmerited favor from God. We've been declared righteous. We've been justified. We've been set free from the chains of sin and death. We've been protected from judgment. We've been declared holy to God. And our victory is assured. That's just 14 of the promises of God. 14 of the promises that we receive when we come to faith in Christ, when he becomes our advocate. Do you know how many promises there are? I didn't have any idea either. So I Googled it. And you know what I found? Bible Gateway says there are 5,467 promises that God gives us in Scripture. That are ours for the taking to help us live the abundant life now. To live victoriously now and into the future. With Christ as our advocate, we can be confident when we come to the throne of grace. Because we have a high priest who has been there and done that. He's given everything once and for all to pay for all of the brokenness that you and I struggle with. I love what Graham Cook says when he talks about our being in the midst of a a spiritual battle. And you know what? This world really is a spiritual battle. You know, we're, we're kind of in that middle ground right now where we're not in heaven yet, but we're saved. And so we have all these promises accessible to us that we can access now. And we can live the abundant life, but we also have this warfare that's happening in our lives all around us all the time. And what Graham Cook says is we need to remember that we have God, the creator of the universe, on our side. And we have two-thirds of the angels on our side. Two-thirds of the angels that are accessible to God and commanded to protect us and to provide whatever we need in order to be victorious. Whatever God decides. Two-thirds of the angels. And we have Jesus, the Son of God, and our advocate, interceding on our behalf forever. And then Graham says, I'd say that's a pretty good fight. Sometimes we lose sight of that, and we just think, oh my gosh, I can't take it anymore. Where is God? But what God is telling you is that he's already done everything for you to live the abundant life. Don't lose sight of his love for you, his passion for you. You're in a good fight. And your victory is secured in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We know that... um, This life can be a struggle, and, you know, we can be very much like the Hebrews at times, where we feel as though we're discouraged and and, uh, in, in danger of giving up. But what you have done, what you set in motion 
from the beginning of time was a plan that would, that would absolutely guarantee our success if we would lean on you in our times of trouble, if we would accept you as our God and Jesus as our advocate. Lord, please don't let us forget what we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.